Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Jeff Nishwitz. He is an international speaker, transformational coach, author, and the co-host of the Impact Leadership Podcast. Jeff is also the founder and chief snow globe shaker of the Nishwitz Group and a co-founder of Cardivera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps its members grow their leadership, their lives, and their businesses. Additionally, he is a recovering lawyer, business development and relationship building professional, and the founder of several businesses over his career. Most importantly, however, Jeff has not only had great successes, but failures, all of which have helped him become a leadership, personal development, and cultural thought leader and disruptive thinker. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lance. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I really like the bit about uh, recovering lawyer. I saw you perk up when I read that. Well, I'm, I'm perked up because I realized I mistyped uh-huh. because I've been recovering for a long time, but I realized in the last couple of years, I'm actually fully recovered now. Good. <laughs> I'm a fully recovered lawyer. I have left it behind. I got all the good stuff from it and I've left the rest behind. Good deal. Good deal. Well, why don't we kick this off? Um, tell me a little bit about your greatest failures. That also kind of stuck out to me and how they've actually helped you. I'm always interested to hear how people have turned a negative into a positive. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. Talk about lessons. And the funny thing about failure, Lance, I don't know if you hear this is every single person I've ever met who had a leadership role or a business all talks about how important failure was. They all say they learned the most from failure. They grew the most from failure. And yet most of those same leaders don't create an environment where their people can fail. It's funny. Like you you know that it works, but we're still terrified of failure. So I've had a number. The biggest one for me is, as you talked about, I used to be a lawyer. I worked for a big law firm, went out on my own, you know, jumped off that cliff. And with a couple partners, we built an amazing law firm. I had an amazing practice. We had amazing firm, great people, financial success. I also had a life, which most lawyers don't have. Mm -hmm. And I realized I hated being a lawyer. I realized once I had figured it out that I really didn't like practicing law. I liked the business side. So I said, I have to leave. And what happened was I quit. I took, I did a slow exit, but I quit practicing law. I left the firm I founded and I started a coaching business. I bought a franchise, a coaching franchise. I said, I'm going to go help people do all the things I did. And three years later, that business was not only out of, I was not only out of business, but it, it had crashed hard and it had crashed in the sense of, um, you know, lost a lot of money on it, was in really deep, huge, almost dark financial hole. And here I had been a success in everything I had done. I'd become a partner in a law firm, started my own firm. You know, I was on a high of success. And what's interesting about that Lance is, the deeper truth is it took me five years to acknowledge that that business failed because of me because, and this is one I'll, I'll share this. I think it's so important to hear. There were three truths about that failure, but they weren't the truth. So they were verifiably true. One was 
that I start, um, I left and started my new business in 2001, right at the beginning, right in the middle of the bubble crash, you know, prior to 08 and 2010, it was the worst financial crisis since the depression. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Did it have an impact? Yes, that's true. The second was that, um, the franchisor did not honor the commitments of what they said they would deliver verifiably true because I mean, I even had a dispute with them. There's a, a signed uh, con a confidentiality agreement. So that's true. And that also had an impact. And the third is that my law firm partners were, there was an agreement to pay me a buyout. And for a lot of reasons that was never paid. It was a very large sum of money that I had planned to use to help launch this new business. So all three of those were absolutely verifiably true. But the deeper truth is that business failed because I got arrogant. And I thought, well, I've had all these successes. All I have to do is go start a business and everybody's going to call Jeff because everybody liked me. I had all these friends and networked like crazy. The phone will ring. I didn't do the work. I didn't do the sales efforts. I didn't do the outreach. I didn't do the education. I just waited for the phone to ring because I got full of myself. But it took five years, and I can tell you exactly because it was in it was in September of 2009, the business failed and closed in 2004, that I stood in front of a group of entrepreneurs and gave a speech and for the first time ever said, look, this business failed, and it was my fault. And I think... The greatest lesson I learned from that is humility and what humility really is. And, you know, someone told me a few years ago, they said, Jeff, you seem to have a, this really powerful humility to you. And they said, most people either were born that way or got humbled. And I said, oh, I got humbled because mm -hmm. I got smacked down. But I got smacked down by my own arrogance. So that's the big one. And that's one of the big lessons I took from it. Yeah, well, here you are today. Like you said, I think one of the positive things is the the humble the humbleness and the humility that you that you gained from it. I mean, I can just sense it from your voice as well. Uh, so it must have been a pretty dramatic change. Uh, well, another thing you like to talk about and 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 um, that you're all about is, is leadership. And things are moving so fast, uh, especially with COVID. Everything got kind of got accelerated uh, business wise. We're meeting online a lot. Um, which means your team might be scattered uh, or, or not. Um, but, but either way, th things, have, things have morphed and they will continue to morph as, every, as everything does. What do you think leadership um, should look like at a time like this and kind of moving ahead, especially if you're, some of these figures stay true, like six, six, up to 60% of people will be working part-time or full-time from home. How, how does leadership work in this kind of environment? So I'll answer that, Lance, but I'm going to preface it by saying that my answer applies before COVID and it would have applied if COVID hadn't happened. What's happened though, I think it's been more highlighted now and it's even more imperative that leaders shift there. For me, leadership is really simple because leadership at its core is all about other people. It's not about other things. It's not about other stuff. You know, leaders don't manage processes. They lead people. They manage people. And too many leaders have got caught up in execution and performance and effectiveness, but they've lost touch with the idea that they exist to grow and develop their people to achieve things. So number one is put your people first in your everyday decisions. 
literally make your people first, not just talk about it. Don't say it because part of the problem is leaders say they put their people first and their people say, no, you don't. I'm, I'm way down on the list. I'm third, fourth, fifth, or sixth on your list. So I don't trust you and I'm not, you're not really believable. So one is really focus on your people. A second is to really embrace the need for empathy and compassion that people are live going through unique experiences in their lives. It was true before COVID. It's even more true now, but it will continue afterwards because so many organizations because of their leadership or lack thereof have created, I call it, it's like you come to work and there's this giant trash bin and the trash bin, you know, says, throw your personal lives in here. And the sign over the door says no humans allowed. And at the end of the day, you can grab your life again. And that's naive. And frankly, it's harsh and cold. So more empathy. Uh, and I think in order to be more compassionate, it's going to require even more vulnerability than ever. Willingness to show our own humanness to our people. And the last one that comes to mind is flexibility. And the sense that I've told leaders over the last eight months that you thought those decisions in March were hard. Those were easy because you were driven by an external disruptor called COVID and a pandemic. And, you know, all your people that ended up working remotely, that was forced by the dynamic of the pandemic. And my guess is many of you a month before said we would never do that and we can't do that. The question is, what do you do when you can come back to work? What do you do when you have 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people and every one of their circumstances are different? And a lot of those have had a better life for the last eight months. Are you going to make them come back to the office because that's how you want it? So uh, those are the big ones for me. Uh, more humanness, more compassion and empathy, uh, a real commitment to your people, vulnerability, and this willingness to see and experience your people differently and having some flexibility. They're not all treated the same because they all have unique experiences now. Yeah, I love that. Um, especially it, the, the reason why I love it the most actually, I think is because, uh, it digital, digital is not human. Right. And so kind of emphasizing those things, I think is super important, especially, especially with us further apart and making sure that you're, 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 you're very, you know, um, touching people in that kind of way. Like they understand, you know, without actually being physical, obviously, uh, there's a couple of other terms that you throw out. I saw in your bio and kind of what I read about you a little bit was um, snow globe leadership and vulnerable leadership. Tell me about those two. Yeah. So let me start with snow globe. It's fun. I happen to have it here because I gave a speech this week. So it's actually sitting here Yeah. And because when I'm on stage, I always have a snow globe with me Okay. because I've discovered this metaphor of snow globes. And the short version is this. Snow globes are all very similar. This one, this one's really cool. It's got dragonflies in it. But snow globes exist for one reason. Right? What? Why does a snow globe exist, Lance? So we could shake it up. Exactly. It, it looks nice. This is really beautiful. And if people can see it, they go, that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. But that's not why it's here. It's here to be shaken. Right. And my reminder to people is that's exactly what has to happen to us. We have to shake things up. We have to shake ourselves up. We have to shake our leadership up. And it's important because even though I just shook this up and no one can see it right now, but as soon as I stopped shaking, this snow globe started to settle. And that's exactly what we all do. We settle because it's a good enough as it is. It's, it's nice. We put it on the shelf. 
And I've asked people the last three years, if they have a snow globe, when was the last time you shook it? And they say, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, because it's good enough. And what happens in our companies or our lives, we shake things up just like I am right now. And then we put it aside and say, well, that was kind of good, but we didn't really change anything. So I encourage people, you've got to shake things up, especially for yourself, because leadership starts inside us. And then you've got to shift things in the shakeup. Otherwise, everything starts to settle immediately. So I'm, I'm known as the snow globe shaker because I tend to come in and talk to organizations and leaders and people and say, we're going to have to look at this thing differently. And we're going to have to see your leadership differently. And you need to see your people differently. And you need to shift not only your perspective, but some of your beliefs and certainly your new action. So that's, that's what snow globe leadership is about. That's the, the heart of it. The vulnerability piece is, I said it earlier, vulnerability is how we demonstrate our humanness through vulnerability. And I've come to believe, and I've met a lot of leaders who concur that says that vulnerability is a shortcut to trust. And that's what's essential in leadership. People have to trust you, have to trust each other. And the problem is, number one, we're terrified of vulnerability. Numerous studies tells us, one that came from Harvard Business Review, says that one of the leader's biggest fear is that they're going to appear to be incompetent, they're going to somehow not have the answers and fail, or they're not going to be viewed as, you know, as confident. Well, so vulnerability is always has a risk with it. It does. I mean, I'd love to say, hey, Lance, go be vulnerable. There's no risk, but that's a lie. There is a risk. But then leaders think it means just being overly emotional. They'll say, what, do I, what am I supposed to do, come to work and cry all day? <laughs> no, it means come to work and actually um, ask questions instead of telling people what to do because questions are vulnerable compared to statements. Be willing to say, I don't have all the answers. Be willing to let other people's ideas in. Be willing to say, I made a mistake. Yeah. Be willing to say, I'm sorry. Take responsibility for the impact you have on the people around you. And and here's a big part of vulnerability that I've learned is so powerful. I'm a believer in the importance of creating a safe workplace. I don't just mean physically safe, but psychologically, emotionally, even spiritually. And I, I encourage leaders now back to put your people first. Instead of focusing on what's your return on investment, I think COVID has taught us the most important measure is what's your return on safety. Do your people feel safe at work? Do they feel like you have their back? Is it safe to ask questions? Is it safe to give and receive feedback? Is it safe to make mistakes? To your earlier question, is it safe to fail here so that I can grow and learn in that, or am I going to be immediately judged as a failure and dismissed? So vulnerability is really just about being more human. That's all it is. And so if a leader doesn't want to be human, then I say get out of leadership. Yeah, I think you're a bad leader if you can't. It, it, just a simple fact if you can't admit you're wrong, um, right, right? Because I, like leading by example is that's core to to being a good a good leader. A hundred percent. Let's move on to some other stuff here um, beyond leadership. I really appreciate your perspective about all that. Um, we have a team. We have several teams here at our firm, and I know listeners to this podcast do as well. Um, what do you do? You have any advice for people? Um, running businesses that, or, or organizations, that, what are the best ways that you found to like empower and engage your teams? Number one, uh, inclusion. Get them involved, include them 
especially in creative processes and in problem solving, typically we go to the usual suspects, get more people involved uh, is one. Number two is uh, not only be clear on where the firm is going and what and what and you stand for, talk about core values or mission and vision, whatever you want to, how you want to label them, get really clear on that. But here's the key. You have to show your people how they are part of that. Because what happens is a lot of times that big vision or what the company stands for is pretty clear, even to your people, they don't understand how they play a role in it. And your job as a leader is to help them connect the dots so they can come to work every day and say, oh, when I do this well, I serve this mission versus I'm just, you know, I'm doing this today, I'm doing my job. Uh, and, And the third thing is back to what I said, when you treat your people with humanity and you treat them with dignity and respect, with many leaders just don't. When you make time for them, you know, a quick example, uh, on my our podcast recently, we had a guest who, I know this man uh, personally, his name's Walt Rakowicz. He just had a book come out. Walt has one of the biggest hearts of any leader I've ever met. Yet when he stepped into a critical role in his leadership journey, they did a 360, and the feedback was he wasn't empathetic. Walt is empathetic. The problem is Walt was moving at such a high rate of speed trying to solve some true crises. I mean, the business he took over as CEO was on the verge of bankruptcy. So he was going at such a quick speed, he wasn't making time for people. So the perception was that he didn't have empathy. And that's what leaders really need to do, Lance, is understand that they have impacts on people, even if they don't mean it, but that's their impact. So it's not enough to say, I'm very empathetic. So if you're not seeing my empathy, then that's on you. No, then it's on you. So I guess the last point I would say, when leaders can embrace that perception is reality and their people's experience is the truth of that organization. So if you want to change their experience, you got to change how you show up to create the change. Don't tell them what you believe in, show them. So it's more show it than tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about comp- company culture for a second. Uh, Alex and I, Alex is my business partner. We, we've worked very hard, but in, our, in an organic way to build company culture because our opinion is that millennials and it's proven, it's proven to be true so far is that one of the salary isn't, doesn't mean loyalty. Benefits don't mean loyalty. A lot of time, I think I think a lot of it has to do with culture and the kind of uh, professional family that you create inside your business or firm. Um, talk about how, like, do you have ways where you suggest to other people how they can build it organically? Because I feel like when you force it, and you 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 go into like you just have a board meeting, a CEO meeting, or something, and you say like, we need company culture. I don't think that's the right way to do it. Can you can you elaborate on that? Am I off yeah. on my thinking, no. or is that? There's a couple things. Let's start with the language. Uh, people say they want to create a culture, but that's a, a mis, that's misguided. Everybody's got a culture already. Mm-hmm. Unless your business started yesterday, you have a culture. But we say we want to have a culture, and we assume it's something positive, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't say, I, I want to have a pandemic. I, I don't <laughs> want to have a, have a virus. But you do want to have a virus because you want your culture to be viral. You want people to naturally buy into it. So I'm not a big, I'll tell you, I'm not a big fan of the bells and whistles of culture building. So what I talk about with culture is number one, you've already got a culture. What you're going to shift is typically you're going to, you're going to move from a culture by default 
which is what it happens to be, to a culture by design. And in the culture by default, here's a quick definition. A culture by default is what your team, what your people believes is the company stands for or doesn't based upon their consistent experience of your behavior and, and decisions. The culture by design, design is get really clear what it looks like, but then you've got to exaggerate that, like working out, you've got to exaggerate the muscle in a visual way. And, and here's the key to that. Lance, most companies, most people, when they think culture, and I know we're on video, they do this. I'm looking up because they're looking up to top leadership. They're saying you're responsible for culture. You tell me what it is and maybe I'll do that. What we want to do is get people involved in the process, help them understand what things mean. Most core values that I've seen don't even have definitions. Most people who bring me in, they'll say, here's our core values. I'll also tell I'm going to put people in separate rooms, tell me what they mean, and they come up with different definitions. And the key is to say, what does that look like in action? And empower your people. You know, I think it's also key to get a couple of your people that may not be top leadership who really buy into the values and that culture and say, I want you to be one of the nurturers and custodians of this. And we want this to be part of every conversation. And here's an example of how you make it visual, and it's scary. This is vulnerability right here, Lance. When you make decisions, even day-to-day decisions, how many companies, how many, how often do you look at a decision and say, what decision best aligns with our values? The conversation doesn't happen. Right. But if you have that conversation every day, even in little things, like even an internal process, you say, which should we do this or that? Well, which process best aligns with our values? That tells people that you're taking this serious. It's not just words. And you're absolutely right. The millennials are not the future. They are the reality today. And they need to see that you stand for something or that you're not getting anything from them. You're going to get short-term taking care of business, and then they're moving on, and they're they're not going to be engaged. They're not going to be loyal. And I don't know if we even need loyalty because loyalty has changed. The question are, are they engaged something that matters to them? And if you can't give them that, they'll find a place they can be engaged. Yeah. And there's plenty, there's plenty of options out there. That's for sure. There's an abundance. Um, you're, you're also a four, uh, a four time author. And, uh, I had to ask you because no. I I'm in the middle. I just, I, I actually just quit social media. Uh, generally, I mean, I, we, I, all my accounts are still up, but that's merely because our social media manager just needs access to them. Um, but in doing that, I need to replace the, all that time I was wasting on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and so I started writing my own book. So as, as, an, as a person who's written four of them and, and my business partner, Alex has also written one too. What advice do you have for first time authors diving into that first book? Uh, a couple pieces. I've, I've published four. I've written, uh, five and a half because I've got a couple just sitting there because I really enjoy writing. I I feel like I'm a good writer and I'm a fast writer. The number one thing I would say is, um, or a couple keys, find a rhythm, which means a process that works for you. My first book took years to write because I just was stumbling around in it. The second book I wrote the quickest and the most effectively because I followed a process that worked for me. The same was true for my third and fourth book. 
part of that rhythm is getting in the habit or the ritual of writing and doing it consistently. Um, one thing I would say as a very practical matter is figure out what works for you best in terms of your writing time and, and encourage you to ha do it in at least 90 to 120 minute blocks because what happens in with everybody is it takes a little time to get into the flow. And if you've been writing Lance, you know that once you're in the zone, man, it just flows out of you, but that doesn't happen in the first 30 or 45 minutes. You got to get there and then figure out what's your exhaustion point. In one of my books, I used to write for six or seven hours at a time and realized that was not best for me. I can mm -hmm. do it, but I'm best at about three hours you give me three hours, I can crank it out. And then I, you know, take a break. And I mean a long break. I mean, I'm not 20 minutes. So figure out your rhythm. And the last thing I would tell you is this. If you've decided to write a book, trust yourself. Don't try and write the perfect book. Don't try and write the book that is like the closest to someone else's. And, and ignore the voice because it'll come up guaranteed. The voice that says, this doesn't matter. Who are you to think what you say matters? And someone else has already written this and probably better because that voice guaranteed is going to come up. You've got to trust yourself and learn to turn that voice off and just say, I have a unique version of this. I have a unique story. I have a unique perspective that no one on the planet can tell. Nobody. And you got to trust that because there's, I've gone through it with four books, even my last book I almost didn't do the book for a long time because I felt this doubt that came up and mm -hmm. I've written books before. Mm -hmm. So pay attention to those voices. They are going to come up. I really like that last one because I think that that's, that's my motivation for writing mine is, and I've, I've, I've already convinced myself of that, that I, this is no one else has this perspective. I, I, I everybody's unique in their own kind of way. So I think that was brilliant. Um, one of the last questions I'd like to ask everybody is uh, in knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time when you first started your speaking, or your, your, your career, um, what is one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Hmm. Hmm. That's a great question, Lance. Surprising. I don't think I've been asked that. I stumped you. And I, do, I know, and I do a lot of, <laughs> I do a lot of uh, interviews and podcasts. The one, right. thing, the one thing that jumps out at me is to, it goes back to what I said, to trust myself earlier mm. and to be bolder sooner. I tend to, I tended over my career, I don't do it as much now, somewhat, but not much. I tended to creep up on boldness, mm -hmm. but that's not really boldness. So that I, I'm putting a word, vulnerability, willingness to be vulnerable and put myself and my message, whatever it is, not, not, to, I mean, I started as a lawyer. What does it mean to say, go way past the edges and feel really uncomfortable and then find my way back to wherever I fit? So I would say, yes, trust myself earlier and be bold sooner because I, realizing that those hesitations are mine. They're not the world's. Yeah. A hundred percent. That was a great answer. Uh, Jeff, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your sage advice. Um, where can people, where can people find and follow you? Um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, where, where are you at? Yeah, I'm all over the social media tree. I'm on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. 
uh, my name, you can spell my last name, you can find me, which is N-I-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z. And the easiest way to find me is my two websites, nishwitzgroup.com. And as you mentioned in the introduction, Cardivera, C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. But connect with me everywhere. And if you want to just email me, my email is jeff at nishwitzgroup.com. I love connecting with people and have conversations and see where they take us. Beautiful. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Lance. Appreciate it. 